Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast. I am your usual host, Sarionat Rajan. Unfortunately, today I'm not joined by Alok, um, but we hope to have a wonderful discussion with our guest, Gabby Crooks Visner, who is an associate professor of politics and global studies at the University of Virginia. Welcome, Gabby. Hi, Sario. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to chatting. We hope to discuss her book on claim making uh, and accountability uh, in India. Uh, But before we jump into the discussion, a very quick description of Gabby. Her research examines local citizenship practice and local governance, the politics of accountability and welfare provision with a regional focus on India. Her book, Claiming the State, Active Citizenship and Social Welfare in India, which we're here to discuss today, as I mentioned, was awarded the 2018 Joseph, Joseph W. Elder Prize for the best first book in the Indian social sciences by the American Institute for Indian Studies. She's also currently engaged in projects on the comparative politics of claim making in the global south, on information provision, civic technology, and social accountability, on gender, policing, and bureaucratic reform, and on local responses to COVID in India. Also things we hope to talk about over the course of this discussion. Welcome, Gabby. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to this. So before we uh, jump into a deeper discussion of your book and your work, uh, some of which we are also in touch uh, about separately from this podcast discussion, uh, I'd love to hear from you about what brought you to writing this book. Um, Would love to hear about your journey and what motivated uh, you picking up this particular topic and writing about it in the way that you do. Oh, yeah, that's that's such a fun, fun question to think about. Um, It was kind of a windy path, I suppose. Um, I guess the the genesis of the questions in the book um, trace back to work in a completely different context. It was actually in the context of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, um, which brought me to southern India, to Tamil Nadu, where I was doing some work um, with the international NGO Oxfam. And we were working on a research project, a study of tsunami responses 
Um, so looking at sort of what at that time we, we were sort of referring to as the second tsunami, which was the tsunami of all the aid that was rushing into affected communities, particularly in the, the fishing communities um, along the coast that had been affected by the tsunami. Um, and there was this really interesting puzzle that started to emerge through some of our work there, which was looking at these really similarly placed and similarly affected fishing communities along the coast that had completely different responses in terms of how they were organizing or not organizing to essentially claim and demand aid to rebuild, right? So some um, and some people, and even in the same villages, were, were doing lots of things to try to um, access different types of aid and different types of assistance. Others were doing much less. Some were working through kind of local informal institutions. Some were going directly to NGOs. Others were going to um, local elected officials. Um, and this was really interesting to me. This is kind of a puzzle, right? I'm, I'm a political scientist by training. I mean, we read all kinds of things in political science grad school that tells us to look at kind of all these sorts of structural conditions. So, to, you know, to look at, to look at gender, to look at caste, to look at uh, class and socioeconomic status, to look at occupation, to look at all these kinds of structural determinants of what our political behavior might be out in the world. And what I saw in the context of the tsunami in South India was um, the sort of puzzle that there was a lot of variation, a lot of difference that really wasn't being explained. And this put a bee in my bonnet, right? Um, that um, there was really, really interesting difference, really, really interesting diversity in how ordinary people went around um, claiming the assistance that they need from their governments. Um, and that variation is that some people do it and some people don't do it. And then even among those who do do it, um, they have really different repertoires of action. They have really different ways of demanding things from their governments. And this became really interesting to me. So a little bit later on in political science grad school, I had the, the chance to develop a, a dissertation length project. Um, and I landed up in Rajasthan, which is a completely different context. Um, it's not um, a, a sort of a, the, I like to say it's not sort of the, the exogenous shocker of a, of a disaster like a tsunami, but it's more of the quotidian day-to-day -day, everyday disaster of being poor and underserved in a in in the rural sector in a relatively poor state like Rajasthan. Um, and so I saw similar unexplained variation in how ordinary citizens uh, do or do not engage the state in their day-to-day -day lives. And that was something that was interesting to me that I wanted to dig into. Thank you. That's a fascinating journey, and uh, it was lovely to hear the sort of this backstory behind, uh, you know, why you picked up the themes that you pick up in your book. Um, I'd love to understand, you know, Gabby, through the book and through a lot of your work and through some of our discussions, uh, we've been talking about this notion of active citizenship um, and and claim making, and uh, and also sort of the role of. Um, uh, it, seeing citizenship vis-a-vis uh, -vis the state. Uh, so I'd love to hear your uh, your perspective on uh, the role of the state and how the state has sort of responded to varieties of claim making and claim making repertoires, um, as well as understand a little bit, little bit more about the terms themselves, active citizenship and claim making. Oh, yeah, yes, no. Those those are such such important good questions. Um, let let me start with the terms, right? Because um, it, it it helps to know what what we're talking about and what we're not talking about, right? So so when I think about the term active citizenship, um, and when I think about the term claim making, as I use those terms most in my work, I'm really thinking about what you could call everyday political behavior by citizens. So what I'm not talking about is elections, which is a bit odd for a political scientist, right? We love elections. We talk about elections all the time. You know, 
India is the world's largest democracy, so we got all excited about elections. Um, and I'm one of the odd ducks in political science who actually doesn't really study elections. I study what happens between elections. Um, and so um, what I like to look at is trying to, trying to sort of unpack the black box of what happens between and beyond elections in sort of the everyday interface between citizens and governments. And very often that means appointed government. It means bureaucrats. Um, and so I want to understand um, when particularly in remote rural areas where in, in the Indian context, and this is true in other parts of the world as well, um, where political parties um, sometimes don't have the same density of networks in remote rural areas. Um, politicians don't come by and visit on a daily basis, right? And so some of the, the political networks are there, of course, but they're not as robust and developed as in urban centers. So I want to sort of understand from an active citizenship perspective is what happens between elections? What happens when politicians aren't there to kind of go bang on their door um, in, a, in a very frequent manner? What are the the everyday practices, and this is what I call claim making, um, the ways of making claims on the state between and beyond elections. And in addition, beyond kind of high profile dramatic acts of social movement mobilization, right? So if political scientists look a lot at elections, right? Maybe anthropologists and of course, political scientists do look a lot at like big movements, right? And big movements, of course, are incredibly important in shaping the world around us politically and socially. Um, but again, they don't explain the day to day, right? Um, they don't explain the sort of most mundane common everyday ways of engaging state structures, bureaucratic structures in our day-to-day -day lives. So when I think of active citizenship, I'm really thinking about everyday citizenship practice. Um, it's not high profile protest and movements, and it's not the sort of punctuated movements of elections. It's the stuff that happens in between. So that's what I refer to as active citizenship and claim making is the set of activities that citizens engage in that space between and beyond elections and, be and between and beyond um, large-scale social movement mobilization. So I'm trying to call our attention to the politics of the everyday. I'm trying to call our attention to the practices, the citizenship practices of the, of the everyday. Um, so that's what I mean by active citizenship and what I mean by claim making. Um, and your other question was, where is the state in all of this? And it's um, a brilliant question, right? Because um, claim making, active citizenship is conditioned by the state as I see it. So what I like to say, and this is a phrase that I use, use in my book, is that claim making is um, both socially produced, but also state induced. And what I mean by state induced is that the state itself is setting the terrain for claim making by what it does and does not do. So by the array of social services that it provides, by the infrastructure that it builds or does not build, um, by the schools that it builds or doesn't build, by the water pumps that it um, builds or lets fall into disrepair, right? So as the state acts or fails to act, it sets the stage for claim making. Um, it creates the very terrain upon which citizens then kind of navigate their way and and try to find day-to-day -day officials, often appointed bureaucrats, where they can go and make claims and demands for the goods and services that they need in their day-to-day -day lives. So I really see the state as kind of the conditioning underlying force that sets the stage for um, whether, how, and, and why citizens then engage in the act of claim making. I find that absolutely fascinating, though I, I'd like to sort of come back to this question around the centrality of the state and notions of citizenship, particularly notions of active citizenship. Um, much like you, I, I 
much more interested in a lot of my doctoral work was around the the quotidian, the everyday aspects of political life. Uh, but increasingly, and I think some of it has been heralded by the the shift towards greater digitization in society. Some form of claim making, some forms of claim making are also not just uh, vis-a-vis the state, but vis-a-vis corporations. So if you look at urban protests um, around fair conditions at work, uh, these are against platforms, strangely, and not the state. Um, Similarly, protests around climate change, broadly speaking, uh, also seem to be uh, in relation to non-state actors. Um, Mm -hmm. Protests that require state action in some instances, but in others do not at all require action by the state. So petitions, for uh, example, um, Hindustan Unilever to stop using mercury uh, in the hills um, is is one such example. So I'd love to hear your take on sort of thinking of the state and active citizenship as a vocabulary and a repertoire um, vis-a-vis the state versus other entities. And uh, if you had any perspectives on that, I'd love to hear them. No, that's a, that's that's really interesting. I love I love the way that you phrased that. Um, you know, thinking about active citizenship and claim making as a broader vocabulary or or, or um, a kind of conceptual category that we can unpack and think about as it as it engages and targets different kinds of actors. The state being one, right? So my work in particular, and I'll be very clear about what I do and don't study. My work in particular studies what I would call state targeted claim making, right? So so pretty much all of my work looks at kind of citizen state engagement, citizen state relations. Um, and this provokes all kinds of questions about which citizens and what kinds of citizenship and what do we mean by the state and which state and the locals, right? So, and we can dig into all of that, right? So even within the concept of the state, there's an enormous amount to unpack when we say citizen state, what are we actually talking about? But you're pushing that even farther and saying um, citizens can engage actively on a quotidian everyday basis to engage other powerful entities that have a bearing on their life, whether it's a corporation, um, right, whether it's um, whether it's, it's it's some kind some other kind of um, center of power that is affecting um, rights, entitlements, inequality, access, right? So I, th- I think you're absolutely right that there is scope for thinking about everyday engagement of centers of power by citizens more broadly. Um, and in my own work, that center of power, that 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 access that is determining um, distribution, material distribution, access to essential services, the fulfillment or non-fulfillment of essential rights and entitlements is in particular the state. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that the, the concept perhaps is legs that can be taken further. No, I wonder about this very often, especially in this, uh, in this day and age where um, Big corporations sort of are very significant in uh, providing very many aspects of uh, what we do and uh, engage with and tussle with as uh, as individuals. And I think there's also the sort of the broader question of the retreating neoliberal state that one must grapple with. And then if the corporation is what fills up its space or parastatal entities of some sort, um, then how do you think about questions of citizenship? But uh, I mean, I think this is very much a live discussion, a very contemporary one, and I'd love to uh, continue that separately with you as well. Um, But, you know, bringing uh, us back to your work, um, I'd love to understand the notions of gender and caste because you tussle with them in the book. And I know that uh, some of your work post the book as well grapples with some of these questions. Um, So, you know, 
notions of caste and gender and how particularly they sit with the ability to make claims, uh, repertoires of claim making and sort of efficacy or success in claim making um, as you discover through your work. I'd love to hear about all of that as well, Gabby. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, no, those those are excellent questions, and maybe in answering them, I can give a little bit of kind of the context of what I was, what I was studying, uh, in in preparation for the book. Um, so, and and I'll pull out some of the puzzles related to to caste and gender, uh, in that to sort of then give a little more meat on the bones in terms of what I'm talking about, and um, in terms of how differently placed citizens by caste by gender do or do not engage in, in claim making of different kinds. So, so the the sort of the the context for the book, the setting is, is rural Rajasthan, as as I mentioned, um, and um, early early on in my field work, um, I was um, you know uh, had defended my. PhD dissertation and had this idea of, of what I was going to do and landed up in the field and started interviewing people and, and very, very quickly realized I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Um, and so just ended up having a lot of very, very open com conversations in communities. Um, and I knew I was interested in service provision. I knew I was interested in the provision of essential services and infrastructure and welfare provision in particular um, by the state, the, um, by which I mean both the central Indian state the Rajasthani state and then local manifestations of the state um, at, at the village level. Um, but here was the puzzle, right? Um, I would speak to people in one village or even one neighborhood of one village and people would talk about something, let's say, for example, in Rajasthan, it's so drought prone and water is such a crisis. So people would always talk about drinking water. And in a particular community or even a particular neighborhood of a particular community, um, people might have a narrative of kind of giving up on the state, right? Broken hand pumps and no water and the state neglects us and like, why even bother? And then maybe just a few kilometers away, maybe in, maybe even in the same panchayat, which is a sort of administrative structure uh, surrounding clusters of villages, um, I would go somewhere else and have the same conversation again, maybe about drinking water. And people who structurally had a lot of similar features, right? So maybe we're from the same caste communities, um, were living at the same income level under the same conditions of poverty, um, shared features of their identity like gender in common. So talking to men or talking to women um, and they'd say something completely different. And they'd say, um, you know, water is the responsibility of the state and we're, you know, like, and and we, you know, we will go to the officials and we will demand this. And they would describe all the strategies they would employ to say, we need drinking water. So as a political scientist trained to think about categories like gender, like caste, like class, this was confusing and puzzling because I saw variation that cut across those features, right? So it wasn't just variation across caste communities. It wasn't just variation across men and women. It wasn't just variation across richer and poorer residents. It was variation among, um, right? So the sort of the realization um, that emerged from this was sort of conditions of, of, of poverty or conditions of social marginality are very, very important, but are not uniformly constraining. And so there were similarly placed people who might be similarly poor, similarly disadvantaged, um, even among women um, who face all kinds of gender barriers in their lives, um, and yet would respond really, really differently to their lived experience and their lived conditions. And so these categories of caste, of class, of gender, were important and had a lot of explanatory role, but were insufficient 
in explaining the variation that I was seeing, seeing. And this provoked a bunch of questions for me about sort of what's cutting across all of this. It's not just about caste. It's not just about gender. Um, so I saw, for example, that there was an enormous gender gap, which is unsurprising to anybody who studies rural India, anybody who studies rural Rajasthan in particular, men engage in claim making at much higher rates than women. But, and this is a really important, but 60% of the women who I interviewed and surveyed um, did engage in claim making, right? So that's actually a really large number. And then among women, there was enormous variation. Um, in fact, I noted that um, lower caste women, um, in large part because of their economic activity outside of the home, were more likely to engage in claim making than higher caste women who were more likely to stay at home and be less um, involved in the public and economic sphere outside of the home, right? So these features of caste and class and gender were all intersecting in really different ways. We're definitely playing a role in shaping whether and how and when individuals made claims on the state or when groups made claims on the state. Um, but they were also really insufficient as explanatory categories. And so I felt like there was a need to break out of the confines of always conditioning how we think about these things in terms of caste, in terms of gender, to push a little deeper to think about what some of the other drivers and conditioning features might be. And what might these be? I know you grapple with the notion of exposure, uh, but would love to hear from you how you think about exposure and how it might sort of be distributed across some of these groups that are recognized, I suppose, in uh, in political science, or, you know, like almost fundamentally categorical quests in uh, in political science. Yeah, so, you know, so, so one of the key arguments that I make in the book is about the, um, you could say kind of the catalytic effects or the motivating effects or the driving effects of what I term social spatial exposure. So there it's social exposure beyond one's immediate social grouping. So it might be um, engaging outside of one's um, closest social groups or outside of one's neighborhood, um, maybe outside of one's own caste community. And then spatial exposure that takes you out of sort of geographically bound localities. So whether it's a really tightly bound neighborhood or outside of the village or even further afield, right? And so thinking about some of the drivers that put people in motion socially across social boundaries of caste, of gender, and also uh, spatial exposure that put people in motion outside of their immediate localities, beyond boundaries of neighborhood, beyond boundaries of village, and even further afield. Um, and the reason I started to sort of look at that in, in the research for the book is um, in all these conversations I was having in villages, I sort of got this, this hunch. It wasn't even a hypothesis yet. It was just a hunch, right? Which was that there was something going on related to mobility. Um, and I don't mean mobility in the kind of classic, like big migration story. I mean, something a little bit more micro, right? It was people moving around, even very locally, moving around on their way to and fro from a work site moving around because they were going back and forth from a market, moving around because they were going to a school, um, moving around because they had a job that took them to other places, moving around because they were engaging maybe socially in um, kind of cross-cutting networks that would bring them to other villages for social reasons, right? So there were all these kind of social and economic drivers of mobility. And this was enlarging exposure to two things. One, the state itself, so moving around and kind of seeing the contours and the existence of infrastructure and social programs 
and resources of the state around you. So kind of walking around or driving around and seeing like a new hand pump being installed in this place and a road being paved in this place and a newly painted school in this place. Um, and so sort of literally physically seeing the face of the state as it through moving around. But the second thing was also exposure to other people. And people were telling stories or narratives, right? So you were being exposed to sort of broader narratives about the state, about what the state could do, about what the state should do. You were being exposed to narratives about claim making, right? Um, what What is it possible for a citizen to do? When can you speak up? How can you speak up? Um, when is it worthwhile? When do you get shut down? When is it not worthwhile? And what I sort of developed a hunch about, and later this became a hypothesis and then a testable hypothesis, and then you know, then a whole research designer on how would I actually test this, um, was that people with greater mobility, social and spatial mobility, were gaining greater exposure to the state, but also to narratives about the state that were changing what they expected. And as their expectations of the state changed, their likelihood of engaging in claim making also changed. And so this became, in a sense, the key variable that I wanted to look at. And it relates to your question, Sadio, about caste and gender, because social and spatial exposure is part of what is cutting across those boundaries of caste and gender, right? So if women have traditionally been more constrained in their mobility, if there are economic or social or even institutional factors that are putting particular women in motion and bringing them out of the home and the domestic sphere and into the public sphere and they're gaining greater exposure, then that starts to explain some of this variation in claim-making behavior by women. It's why the category of gender itself is insufficient to explain the variation we see. But thinking about social and spatial exposure of different groups of women becomes a way of looking at how we can explain why some women are active claim-makers and other women are not, just to give one example. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. No, that's fascinating. And what I love about exposure is that, it, I mean, using exposure um, as a way of trying to understand uh, variations in claim making, variations even in repertoires, um, is that it allow, allows you to go beyond these meta categories. And, um, and I think, uh, and I find it deep, deeply troubling that so much of political science literature, and I think, I mean, it's it's a broader sort of conversation as well, is dedicated towards finding these unicausal or broad categorical explanations for outcomes. And then um, there's so much variation within groups that, um, you know, we're not looking for the real reason. So uh, exposure is, is, a, is a fantastic way, I think, to frame um, some of the variations that we see in, um, in how and why people respond and react and engage with the state. Uh, but I'd love to bring you to another... Uh, I guess 
factor that I think is uh, that I, I wonder how it's uh, related to this question of exposure and uh, questions of engagement of different groups with the state. Um, and that's technology. Uh, and I speak of technology in all its senses, um, both in the sense of technologies that mediate the relationship with the state very directly, um, that sort of speed or make um, service provision more efficient. But I also speak of technology in the sense of uh, more broadly digital technologies being available. This includes social media, video, uh, audio, and some of these tools that have now become far more democratic than they used to be. Um, and how does that play a role in mediating exposure um, and mediating citizen-state relationships? And I wonder if there's, there's some that you allude to in the book, uh, but I know that a lot of your work post has uh, grappled with some of these questions. Yes. Okay. So technology, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. This is, this is such an important set of questions. And I'll 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 freely admit that it's not a topic I really engage with in the book, and um, in large part it's be maybe because the the field work for the the book was was carried out um, um, kind of two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven, right? Um, and so you know at at this point I think the digital and the digital landscape has changed, um, and the technology landscape has changed. So I um. In, in some of my other work um, elsewhere in India, you know, um, I do look now at at sort of the the proliferation of digital technologies. Um, some work that I, I know you're closely familiar with, Sarayu, related to the the role, for example, of citizen journalism as a platform, um, uh, video based journalism, social media um, as sort of platforms for claim making, um, and trying to understand sort of when and how can digital technologies, can video making, can the sort of technology of citizen journalism and citizen reporting become an effective amplified platform for citizen claim making. So in a sense, what I was studying in Rajasthan in 2009, 10, 11, was sort of day-to-day -day ordinary claim making by citizens who probably didn't have all that much access to tech technology. So as a point of reference, right, as I was carrying out my field work, I myself was carrying a little tiny flip phone, right? And I would meet people in, in, in villages who had cell phones, right? But they were little flip phones. There wasn't a sort of large proliferation of smartphones yet. That landscape has really changed. Right. And and in my work now, I see, um, you know, this deep penetration of digital technologies and of smartphones in particular, really changing the landscape. Um, and so this raises a really important question. What does this mean for citizen state interface? What does this mean for citizen state engagement? What does this mean for claim making? When and how can technology enhance and amplify citizen claim making? And when does it not? Um, and so what I'm starting to grapple with in some of my work now is sort of thinking about what does it take to make the sort of information received through technology and the voices being expressed through technology? So, you know, for example, through video, through social media, et cetera, um, what does it take to make that meaningful and resonant, right? Because I think there's, you know, it's, you know, simply holding a smartphone and accessing information about government schemes doesn't make that information come to life. It doesn't give it meaning. It doesn't make it actionable. Right. I learned that there's a scheme because I read this thing on my smartphone. Do I believe it? Maybe, maybe not. Do I believe that even if I believe that the information is true, do I think that that's something that I can access? Do I have a, a sense of efficacy? Um, do I believe that the bureaucrats and politicians around me will be responsive? Right. There are all these other social and political factors that inform how I might not only receive a piece of information through technology, but 
whether it's an actionable and whether I take it on and act on it. And so for me, the really interesting question is what brings information communicated through these new technologies to life? What gives it meaning and what makes it actionable? And I think that talking about these digital platforms is extremely important. They are proliferating, they're powerful, people are using them, but it's not an automatic direct linkage between access to technology and the expression of citizen voice or effective claim-making. There are all these other questions that I think are really ripe for research about what brings that to life, what makes that actionable, um, what gives it meaning in people's day-to-day lived experience. No, that's fascinating, and uh, I I, oh, and I entirely agree with you. And I think that uh, there's also a, a very functional way of looking at technology purely from an eff- efficiency lens. And I think India is um, across states there has been sort of there have been huge investments in uh, technological architectures, often without considering um, some of the ways in which uh, communities and individuals make claims of the state. Uh, but I'd love to sort of uh, take you from the book into uh, some of the work you alluded, alluded to uh, now that's happened post your work um, in Rajasthan um, with community organizations such as Video Volunteers. Um, and talk about this uh, in, in the earlier part of this discussion as well, you refer to the question of bureaucratic responsiveness. Um, and I'd love to hear uh, what you're seeing in terms of uh, bureaucratic responsiveness, because that's the other side. Um, to the claim making process in that sense. Uh, and there's uh, structural contextual factors which influence bureaucratic responsiveness. Uh, but how, for example, does citizen voice play into it? And then what are the broader contextual factors that drive uh, state responsiveness in this context? Oh, the, those are such great questions. I mean, because I, I you know, I, I really think, um, in fact, those are some of the most important questions we can be asking, right? Because because claim making, particularly when it's start targeted to appointed officials, um, is conditioned by whether and how and and to what depth and how frequently citizens really see responses. So I, I like to think that the most useful way that I've found to think about this is, is in terms of kind of feedback effects or feedback loops, right? So um, we could imagine a world of kind of positive feedback effects where you've got um, active citizens who are making claims on officials who are responsive and therefore are providing things and therefore that galvanizes citizens to engage more. And we see this sort of virtuous cycle of a sort of a, a more responsive state um, provoking and enabling more active citizenship who in turn uh, provoke more responsive uh, service provision and more responsive rights fulfillment um, by government, right? So you can imagine this kind of virtuous cycle. Um, that's a that's 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 a that's a pie dream, right? That that's um that that virtuous cycle, right? It it sounds very nice on paper, but in practice, it's it's very hard to achieve. It's it's very hard to see evidence of those purely positive cycles, um, in large part because of the constraints you mentioned, right? Which is that when you think in particular about bureaucracy and appointed officials, they are so deeply constrained by so many factors. Um, so um, think about different kinds of bureaucratic constraints in terms of the the organizational hierarchies that local level officials are positioned within, um, almost by design, local officials, and by here I mean officials maybe at, in the Indian context at the block level, which is, um, you know, um, in the United States would be kind of akin to a county, right? So it's sort of a, it's a a sub-national and sub-state kind of local unit of of administration, um, or even at the village level. Um, They are almost by design um, upwardly answerable. 
right? Um, because they answer to higher ups in the bureaucracy who can monitor them, who can discipline them, who can fire them, who can transfer them, um, who can delay their payments, who have control over their budgets, right? So there are all these things within the hierarchy of the organizations that they work in that can condition and constrain um, what bureaucrats can do. In addition, there are all kinds of capacity constraints. Um, there's um, some really brilliant work um, by Desh Kapoor and Adi Dasgupta on um, what they term bureaucratic overload in the Indian context, right? They look at officials um, who are just completely overloaded by the number of schemes that they need to administer. They lack information, they lack time, they lack personnel, they lack fiscal resources, they lack physical resources. And so they are capacity constrained. And then add to that mix political constraints. Um, the sort of Weberian fiction of having an autonomous bureaucracy that stands at a distance from politics and from political parties um, is completely fiction, right? We know for a fact, particularly in the Indian context, but in many other settings around the world, that politicians can bring great influence to bear on the behavior of bureaucrats by controlling budgets, by controlling transfers, again, by monitoring, by disciplining. And so appointed bureaucrats who are the ones who hold the purse strings, who oversee the day-to-day -day of policy implementation, who are enormously important to citizens' day-to-day -day lives, and who are the targets, more often than not, of citizen claim-making, have very little structural incentive to respond directly to citizens. They respond instead to higher-ups in the bureaucracy, and they respond instead to politicians. This is a puzzle. This is a problem. This is what I call a bureaucratic accountability gap. Citizens turn to appointed officials at the local level all the time because they're accessible, because they hold the purse strings, and because they implement policy. They are the targets of claim-making. But almost by design, those same appointed officials have very little incentive to respond directly to citizens. So that is a problem. That is a gap. That is an accountability gap. And so in my most recent work, what I'm trying to understand is how does citizen claim making, how does citizen voice, how does citizen mobilization fit into that constrained environment? When and how can it create space? It's not going to get rid of those bureaucratic constraints. It's not going to get rid of those political constraints. But can it create space? Um, can it? It find entry points to grab the ear, the attention, and the responsiveness of local officials who are deeply, deeply constrained, but at the same time have some room to maneuver and have some discretion and flexibility in their day-to-day -day jobs, and some of the time do respond. And so trying to understand those instances where local officials, despite all these constraints, are responsive to citizens trying to understand those conditions and trying to understand how citizen voice can enlarge those spaces, I think is one of the most critical research frontiers that we have. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And I, uh, and, you know, I have the rush of a practitioner, I suppose, uh, but I'd love to hear what you're seeing uh, in terms of what engenders effectiveness and responsiveness. Um, I, I know it's early days in the research, but uh, is there something that um, that stands out in terms of uh, enabling citizens to make or enabling bureaucrats to more effectively maneuver within the constrained space in which they operate? Yeah, you know, so one of one of the things that I'm really interested in, and this is something that that I'm working on in partnership with uh, the organization Video Volunteers, who you mentioned, and they are a um, a community media NGO that works largely in rural India. They're they're um, an organization that has worked for um, almost two decades now to try to use um, not only technology but but sort of social networks in in um, 
largely in rural India, to try to amplify and support citizen voice. Um, and so this has been really interesting partnered research with video volunteers as, as the practitioner, where we're trying to explore and understand um, how local bureaucrats respond to different kinds of framings, right? So citizens can come in and complain, let's say, about a water source, um, and they do so all the time, but they can do so in very different ways. They can frame the complaint or the grievance or the demand or the petition or the request in really different ways. They can do so in ways that are contentious and maybe antagonistic, and sometimes that's really powerful. They can threaten collective action. They can threaten protests. They can threaten to level hop to higher level officials. They can threaten to get a politician involved, and that can be very effective. But other times they can do it in a more collaborative way where they suggest, um, you know, let let me help you to help me, um, right? We have some common aligned interests. Um, you have targets to meet. You have um, organizational goals to fulfill. And sometimes my goal as a community member trying to advocate, for example, for clean drinking water in my community is in complete alignment with those goals. And I might possess information about the needs and the wants and the lived realities in, in my community that can help you to do that work uh, better, more effectively, more efficiently um, in a way that actually meets those targets in a, in a better way. Um, and so trying to explore um, the role of framing, by which I mean the different ways of presenting information, demands, wants, interests to officials. The content might be the same, but the way in which the information is presented might be different. And so that's something we're trying to explore. When and why might a more... Um, contentious approach be effective? When am I, why might a more collaborative approach be effective? Um, when and why does it help to frame things in terms of rights and law and legal entitlements? Uh, when and why does that not help at all? Um, when and why does it help to frame things in terms of sort of social mission and social calling and social benefits? Because um, even though local bureaucrats are often maligned and thought of as being corrupt or lazy or like they don't care. In fact, an awful lot of them do. A lot of them, often a lot of them are, are working, for example, in a block development office because they actually care about local development, right? And, and so presenting to officials something that can sort of build on and, and, and provoke their own sense of social mission or their own sense of social calling can sometimes be effective. I don't think there's any one silver bullet. I don't think there's any one magic frame, but I think there are many frames um, that can present information and requests and demands to officials in different ways. And the thing to explore is how citizens can do this kind of messaging and this kind of framing. It's almost an act of political communication to provoke the greatest responsiveness from a particular official under a particular setting, right? And so again, there's no one magic, one size fits all approach, but it's about kind of understanding the array of approaches and when one particular approach, under what conditions particular approaches seem to be more effective in, in for particular issues. So I, I, I think that that's really interesting and that, that's something that we've been exploring um, together with video volunteers. That's fascinating. It takes me back to my field work, um, where I, I mean, I did field work uh, between two election cycles, one the 2014 uh, general election and local elections here in Karnataka in mid-2015, mid so it was about a year and a half. And all through uh, my time in the sites that I worked at, um, there was this open manhole 
um, which smelled really bad. Like the whole area was like, it was, it was a miasma. It was, it was awful. Um, and the community that I was working with, uh, they were, they were constantly, they were constantly making representations to the local bureaucrats to come fix it. Uh, so first it was please, then it was a letter. Um, then uh, there was a slightly more contentious mini protest, I would say, not really a full protest. Uh, there was a representation to the MLA, but nothing happened. This was over months. Um, and then there was a house that used to be very close to it. Um, and the lady of the house, uh, she was not, uh, you know, using active citizenship in the loser's sense. Uh, she was not an active citizen, never engaged with any of these protests, barely um, she had to be convinced to sign the letter, etc. She's like, I'm going to show up and then I'm going to tell the bureaucrat that my grandson is getting married. And then she lands up at the bureaucrat's office uh, one fine day and a few of us go along to watch what happens. And then she's she's very emotional and she says, uh, you know, my grandson is getting married. Do you think I can bring a bahu in, that's the daughter-in-law in, um, to, to the house when there's an open drain? Uh, don't you have any sense of shame? Um, and what if I dig up a drain in front of your house when you have a marriage? Um, and then it was fixed the next day. So <laughs> so uh, the notion of what drives the response is definitely a puzzle, but I suppose there are, um, you know, structures and patterns to it, um, you know, to, to sort of uh, induce a more favorable response. Right. Well, that's such that's such a great example. And, you know, it speaks to a bunch of different things. It speaks to sort of um, the role of persuasion, the role of emotion, um, pride, shame, right? I think, again, we have this tendency, and, and this is something that I'm really interested in working on in some of my recent research. Now we have sort of a, a, a tendency to treat bureaucracy as a sort of black box and to treat bureaucrats and local bureaucrats in, in particular sort of cogs in the machine or to assume, um, and, and I just, you know, at great length, detailed the, the many, many ways that these actors are constrained. Um, what's interesting to me is not just to de detail those constraints, but to think about how despite all those constraints, we do see some responsiveness. Um, and to me, this points to sort of the power of street level bureaucracy. If we go back to um, some of the famous work in the 1980s by um, by the political scientist Lipsky, who talked about the role of street level bureaucrats and the enormous discretion and flexibility that, that street level, local level bureaucrats exercise. And, and Lipsky tells us that in fact, it's through the discretionary action and implementation of these local bureaucrats that, that policy actually um, not only gets implemented, but actually like takes on its 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 life, right? Um, policy only becomes real through the implementation by these really local level bureaucrats. And so Lipsky and others have studied for a long time the sort of the room to maneuver and the, the flexibility and the discretion that these very local officials have, um, which we sometimes overlook because we think, well, they're just cogs in the machine, they're so constrained, they're so captured, but there is flexibility and there is discretion and there is room to maneuver, right? So when the lady of the house showed up and, and called on a sense of shame in this particular instance, right, there was enough room to maneuver that someone could respond. So that, that to me is actually really powerful. It shows that, um, yes, you have really constrained bureaucrats, but those constraints are not all encompassing. Um, they're not hegemonic. There is room to maneuver. No, absolutely. It also reminds me of, uh, I want to say the state and society, Joel Midgal, um, you know, who talks about sort of the various scripts that emerge in terms of uh, political contention. So um, there's, uh, you know, that that sounds fascinating. And I look forward to sort of seeing the results of your work as you um, as you uh, go through this, uh, this work. Uh, but thank you very much, Gabby. It's been wonderful speaking with you. And I feel like 
you know, each time I speak with you, I come away with so much more to think about. So uh, thank you very much for your kindness and uh, the time you've spared to do this. Oh, well, the, the feeling is absolutely mutual. I've learned so much and continue to learn so much from the, the research that you're doing with Uptia Institute and, um, and you know, really, really, really enjoy also sort of seeing the more applied and practitioner lens of many of these questions that we're asking in common. So um, I continue to learn so much from your work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great to be part of this conversation and I, I hope we can continue to, to talk about all of these themes. Thank you so much, Gabby. And to our listeners, see you all in a couple of weeks. Uh, thanks for your time.